Good afternoon, church. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Malachi 1, verses 1 through 5 reads, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good afternoon. I hope that y'all are doing well. My name is Marco, and I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. In the event that you didn't catch John, we're going to find ourselves in Malachi chapter 1. We're looking at verses 1 through 5. If you've never read Malachi, uh, if you don't know where Malachi is at, it is in the Old Testament. It is the last book in the Old Testament, so it should be somewhat easy to find. Well, while you open or load your Bibles, I just have two quick updates for you. The first one is that we love to uh, come up with and produce uh, gospel-centered content for you to have and use as you grow as disciples of Jesus. And so to that effect, if you visit our website uh, under our resources tab, you'll see that we have a discipleship guide for our groups and for individuals uh, on Malachi. I know uh, we've gotten some feedback on our discipleship guides of how they can be helpful and fruitful and beneficial in study and groups. And so just know that that is live on our website. In addition to that, when you walked in through the foyer, you may have noticed these little journals. We used to order uh, ESV journals that were super cool, and it had like the verses of the book that we were going through along with uh, some really cool pages. Well, we didn't do that this time. But what we did do was order journals, and then we slapped our Malachi graphic sticker on there. These are for you. These are our gift to you uh, so that you can take notes. I know many of you like taking notes, um, and so I hope this is a a small blessing to you, and uh, I think there's like a case of 50, so it's like first come, first serve, y'all. Anyway, um, and and if one of you wants this one, you can take it. Not right now, but um, (laughs) afterward. Uh, So those are the two things that I have for you, the discipleship guide and these really cool journals. Uh, Let's dive in because we have a lot to unpack as we look and consider God's word through Malachi. I don't know about you, but life is hard. You add to that the daily grind of the ordinary, the normalcy of disappointments, the acute suffering that comes with broken health, broken relationships, and broken spirits, it feels defeating, because it can be. In the last six weeks, as an example, members in our church family have experienced difficult seasons from the weighty news of family members being in the hospital with serious conditions to the loss of loved ones. Marriages are walking through hardship. Individuals are experiencing distress. This might be your story. Add to that our own sin in the midst of seasons such as this. 
For many, the common expression that I've heard in the last couple of months has been, why can't I just catch a break? For others, when it's come to the season that they've been walking through, it seems as though it has led to a growing state of apathy. Hardness of heart toward God and toward others. In the Christian faith, we regularly talk about stoking the flame of God in our hearts. We talk about making sure this fire is healthy, bright, and lasting so that we would draw near to God. But what happens when it feels like the flame is dying out? What happens when we're just not, if we're honest, we're not tending the fire? You might ask yourself, how can I remember to believe that God loves me, that God cares when everything around me seems fickle, final, and fleeting? In walks the book of Malachi. Today we're starting this new series, and we're going to be here for about the next seven weeks leading us into Advent. And if any of what I just said resonates with you, then you're in good company, sort of. This is exactly what's happening to Israel, God's chosen people. There's a lot happening around and within them that their hearts have grown apathetic toward God. And God, through Malachi, initiates conversation with them. And man, that's awesome. God always initiates. He's the one that always makes the first move. And so for Israel, like us, part of the problem is that Israel is trying to interpret their circumstance based on what they want God to be for them, rather than interpreting their circumstance through the lens of who God is and what he has done for them. In Malachi, we're going to see, particularly in our opening passage, and here's your main idea, what we're going to see as God initiates conversation with his people is that before he brings conviction, he brings them a reminder of his covenantal love for them. Before conviction, there is his covenant with them. So let's turn to God in prayer, and then I'll hook you up with a little bit of context. Let's pray. God, we begin our time in this series by thanking you for your grace, your undeserving favor toward us through Jesus, which reconciles us to us that we go from orphans to sons and daughters. Your grace for us as we are reconciled to one another. So we're no longer enemies, but brothers and sisters, all because of Jesus' work for us. God, we praise you this afternoon for the gathering where just a few moments ago we were singing praises to your name, making much of your work for us through Jesus. May we continue to do that as we examine your word. God, would you tune our hearts simply to receive your word this afternoon? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, here we go. So let's, let's talk a little bit context when it comes to Malachi. Let's look at the opening verse. He writes, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So let me give you a little bit of background so that you have a general idea of what is going on. And so just like Arnold Schwarzenegger as Officer Kimball in Kindergarten Cop asks, who is your daddy and what does he do? We're going to answer similar questions with Malachi, beginning with who is Malachi and who is he writing to. Malachi is a prophet, and there's not much known about Malachi, but he is a prophet that has been chosen by God to deliver a message to the people of God. And just so that you know, when it comes to the Old Testament prophets, that's pretty much their job. These are men that have been chosen by God to preach a sermon or preach a message to his people. Oftentimes, that message is one of repentance. Malachi's name means messenger or my messenger. In other words, he is God's messenger. He's God's sent one. He's writing to Israel because of the condition that they're in. And so this kind of leads us into what's going on. The book of Malachi takes place about 100 years after Israel has returned from exile in Babylon. It, at one point, God exiled Israel from the promised land, and upon their returns, about 70 years later, they're all on fire for God as they came back to their city. You can read all about this in Nehemiah. And so as the people of God come back to their land, they're on fire for God because their temple has been rebuilt. The walls of Jerusalem are back up and running. Worship services are dope. And they're all on this spiritual high because God has brought them back to the land. And if you read, this is on your notes, I'm not going to read all of it, but if you read through Nehemiah 8, we get this glimpse of the condition of the people's hearts as the the city is rebuilt. In Nehemiah 8, we see that Ezra the priest comes before the people and he brings them the law, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the month. And Ezra read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. So they had like a six-hour worship service. This portion of Nehemiah 8 concludes by saying that Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So Israel has come back from exile. They're on fire for God. Everything seems to be returning back to what God has told them, and they're all about worshiping God. His word is open. They're receiving it. Their heads are bowed. They're in humility. It seems awesome. Yet some years go by. Some commentators would say that it's about a little over a decade. Some years go by, and Israel now, in the time of Malachi, is going through the motions. They're going through the motions of their spiritual life. Not only that, they've grown apathetic toward God. Darkness has invaded their hearts. They've grown distant from the, the their, excuse me, they've grown distant from the Lord. And despite knowing the stories of God's glory for them, we see their hardness of hearts toward God, one another, and worship. 
Malachi is structured in a way where God initiates conversation with Israel in a series of disputations. There are six disputes in Malachi, and this is how it's structured. God states a truth, and then Israel questions God about that truth, and then God responds by not only addressing their apathy or their sin or their challenge, but gives them proof of their sin and their apathy. Malachi, God through Malachi has some really, really hard words for Israel. In the next seven weeks, we're going to see some disturbing language and some hard rebukes from God to Israel. But before we get to that, we must consider this first dispute found in verses 1 through 5. What I want you to know is that as we walk through Malachi, I want you to come back to these five verses every time. Because it'll get a little uncomfortable and it'll get hard. I want you to come back to these five verses. You'll see why in a moment. But before that, what we see at large in these five verses is that God is a loving father who always makes the first move with his children. Always makes the first move with his children. So, to that effect, let us look. There's a little bit of context. We'll, we'll dive into some more as we move forward later on. But here it is. Verse 1 uh, into, uh, into 2. Here we go. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you. I have loved you. The opening verses of Malachi is God initiating this conversation with Israel. And he begins by saying, I have loved you. Once more, before God brings conviction, he reminds them of his covenant with them. Here's why this matters. In that opening passage, the oracle of the word. The word oracle here, means, it's not what you think it means. The word oracle means burden. In other words, God is so burdened with Israel that he has, as I mentioned, a strong word for them. As we move past this passage, we're going to see that right out of the gate, God does not hold back on addressing their sin or their spiritual apathy. And you can read the rest of the book. It's not like you've got to wait until next week, right? You can read the rest of the book. Malachi consists of four chapters, 55 verses. It'll take you about 15 to 20 minutes to read through it. And what you're going to see is that God is going to address, exhort, refute, and rebuke Israel. But before he does that... Before he lights them up with conviction, he reminds them and us of his covenantal love. Church, this is vital. This is vital for you and me. Because here in verse 2, God is saying, I have loved you to Israel and in turn to us, listen to me, in spite of their current condition. Did you catch that? I have loved you. He's telling them, reminding them of his love for them in spite of their current condition, their present rebellion toward him, the rebellion of his commands and their rejection of his worship. The way it's worded, I have loved you, it sounds like it's past tense, but in actuality, it's perfect tense. There's a little bit of English grammar for you, meaning it's not past tense, but it captures past, present, and future. 
So when you read, I have loved you, God is saying, hey, I have loved you before, I love you now, I love you tomorrow. Israel, along with you and I, need to remember the love of God. Sounds corny, but check it. I need you to go there with me right now. You are loved by God right now. Present tense. That's why I want you coming back to these five verses as we go through the rest of the book. See, often we associate rebuke with punishment and rejection, but in God's economy, rebuke is meant to bring us back to him in repentance. I want you to remember the love of God for you. You are his treasured possession, his chosen people. You are, present tense, sons and daughters of the Father because of Jesus. That statement, I have loved you, further shows how God's love is vastly different than the way you and I love. Like, can we be honest? Our love for our spouse, our friends, our kids, whatever, it's conditional. Like, not the agas, it's conditional, right? Like, for those of you that are married, have you ever told your spouse or have your spouse ever told you, I love you, I just don't like you right now? You laugh because you probably said it this morning, right? You've heard that. Or if you got kids, I love my kids, I'm just over them right now. And if you're like, I've never said that to my kids, but you thought it, all right? I guess, all right? We're just putting it all on the table right now, right? Or when our friends uh, irritate us, you know, for whatever reason, because they breathed. Our love is totally conditional. When you've made that comment, when you've thought that comment, you know, hey, I love you, I just don't like you right now, here's what you're saying in that moment. You ready? Here's what you're saying. My affection for you has changed in this moment. In this moment, whatever it is, my affection towards you has changed. And now I'm going to have to do some work or you're going to have to do some work with me so that we're back on good ground and then we can build from there and then we're going to fail and I'm going to reject your affection again at some point or my affection for you is going to change. Whatevs. That's how it works. But that's not how God's love works. His love, his affection for you has not changed for you. His affection for you right now has not changed in spite of this moment, this season, or your spiritual condition. I want to sit there for a little bit. Think about that. We're going to pull Mr. Rogers. Ten seconds. Think about that. God's love for you sits on you from him in spite of this moment, this season, or your condition. See, if it makes you uncomfortable, this is most of the time, this is why it makes us uncomfortable, because we evaluate God's love based on what we think, what we believe, and what we want God's love to look like, rather than looking at God's love through his character. 
Church, right now, you are loved by God. If you belong to Jesus, God loves you. And when you read that phrase, I have loved you, God is saying, hey, he's meeting you where you are, and he's saying, hey, I know where you're at. I know what's been happening. I know what you've done. I know where your heart is really at right now. And the first thing I want you to know is that I have loved you. If you're in a place of apathy or doubt or rebellion, I want you to remember first God's love for you. That's just verse one. Technically two, but you know what I mean. I want you to remember God's love for you. Next, continuing on in verse Two, so if we're looking at this in terms of points, we remember God's love. Number two, now we're going to recognize the condition. So here it is, verse two, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, here's Israel's response, right? But you say, how have you loved us? Right? So God states the truth, then Israel challenges that truth. And that might be your response right now. You might not be saying it out loud. Maybe you didn't write it in the journal, but maybe you've thought about it a time or two. How have you loved me? Throughout Malachi, we're going to encounter the tone of God and the tone of Israel. And so when Israel responds to God by saying, how have you loved me? They're not asking with curiosity like, oh, Okay, yeah, I totally forgot. Tell me, how how have you loved us, Lord? No, it's not that. There is almost disdain in their tone. How? There's doubt. How have you actually loved us? Their tone is apathetic. It's cynical. It's hardened. They have forgotten. They are distant from the Lord, so distant that they're unaware of their condition. If, If that's you... Are you aware of your condition towards God right now? Has apathy and bitterness consumed you? See, part of the problem isn't just that they're apathetic, it's that they're unaware. Even with glory and history on their side, Israel has strayed from the Lord. Their posture is not one of affection, but apathy. Their posture is angry, not in adoration toward God. Do you recognize the condition of your heart? How has the condition of your apathy or your doubt or your sin, whatever it is, how has that shaped you the last three weeks, three months, three years? If we cannot recognize God's truth, especially when he's speaking right at us, if we cannot recognize God's truth, we're not going to want to turn toward his love. So if we want to grow in affection, if we want to begin to turn toward affection, we must recognize 
our apathy, our spiritual condition. Now, that's the recognizing portion. And praise be to God that he doesn't just walk away from Israel. That he doesn't walk away from us. Right? I mean, check it. He opens up by saying, I have loved you. And Israel says, how have you loved us? Right? God could have done this whole spiel where he says, really? Seriously? You don't know? You don't remember? All right, deuces. I'm out. Forget this. No, God is not like us. Praise be to his name. Instead, he responds by reminding them of his work for them. This is the part where he addresses their condition and then gives them proof of that condition. All right, here we go. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And here's God's response. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? It's kind of an interesting response, right? Because they're like, yeah. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever." All right, here we go, here we go. There's two things. We gotta look at some history and then we're gonna look at some theology. Cool? All right, one of you. Here we go. All right, some history and then some theology. History, their response is, how have you loved us? God says, how have I loved you? Let's go back to the beginning. And he takes them back to Genesis in the days of Jacob and Esau. And so I'm going to read, this is on the notes, Genesis 25, it's going to give you a little bit of context. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanan Aram, man, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Cool. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Here it is. The Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she says, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. He's talking about two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the oldest one. They're twins. Esau is the one that comes out first, right? Now, how does this connect to Israel? How does this connect to, he mentions the Edomites. All right, here we go. In Genesis, later on, we see that God changes Jacob's name to Israel. That's where we get Israel from, right? When it comes to Esau, the people of Esau are the Edomites. Tracking? All right, I hope so. <clears throat> here it is. Here's the distinction between the two brothers. So you got these two brothers, right? People come from them. So you got Esau. His name literally means hairy because he was, 
okay? He, he was a hunter, he lifted things, he was incredibly terrible. He was sexually immoral, constantly like uh, 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 disobeying God's word, marrying uh, women that did not know the Lord, breaking God's covenant. In fact, in Jewish literature, they see him as an offense. Like if you call someone an Esau, that's like the worst thing, right? <clears throat> and so that's who Esau was. Terrible dude, right? Now, we got Jacob. Jacob is an avid endorsement. Um, and <laughs> not many of you caught that. All right, so he's an avid endorsement, and his name literally means deceiver. Thanks, Mom. Uh, this dude outwitted his brother in selling or giving up his birthright over a bowl of caldo. Right? He deceives his father and those around him. These two brothers were terrible. So the question is, which one of them was worthy and deserving of God's love for them? Neither of them. Neither of them. Yet what does God say? I have loved Jacob. I have loved Jacob. So that's the history. Now let's look at the theology. God chose Jacob, Israel, for his glory. He chose them, or he chose, yeah, he chose Israel for the glory of his name, to love them, to bless them, to give them an inheritance. You might ask, why? The answer is yes. You might even add, well, that isn't fair, choosing this one over that one. Number one, who would it go to then? You might add, okay, I'll give you that one. It's still not fair, to which I would say, you're right. It's not fair. It's called grace. Undeserving, ill-deserving favor from God toward sinners. So God reminds Israel, how have I loved you? I chose you. I chose you to be mine. Not because of anything in you that was amazing, but because I'm merciful. This is called the doctrine of election. And it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Yet I'm convinced that part of the reason it makes many uncomfortable is because we try to interpret election based on what we want God to be rather than interpreting it on who God is. Merciful and gracious. In fact, to the Romans, Paul says it this way. I don't know if this is on your notes, but this is what Paul says in Romans 3. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Why do we have a hard time embracing God's love for us? Because we're stubborn. We desire self-reliance, self-sufficiency. And then when we finally come to a place where we're so exhausted by our, by our own efforts, what are we reminded of? God meets us where we are and says, hey, I have loved you. And he does that so that we might find our happiness and joy in receiving and returning to him. 
See, through Jacob, through Israel, God revealed redemption and favor, and he chose them, and he disciplined them because they are his, and they have returned to him. When it came to Esau or the Edomites, right, they banked on their own sufficiency, and yet inevitably they were conquered in the 6th century. You can read about that in 1 Samuel or in Obadiah. But here in Malachi, here's what God says. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. That's judgment upon the Edomites. He continues, if Edom says, we are shattered, the people of Esau, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, God says, they may build, but I will tear down. They banked on their self-sufficiency, and eventually they were conquered. Well, why is Jacob any better? He's not. God, in his love, chooses Jacob, the story of redemption is seen through the people of God. Esau or the Edomites are brought to ruin. Oh, is it because God didn't choose them? It's because they were headed that way already. God has chosen you. You are loved by God. Nothing in us is worthy of that. And yet God has chosen you forever to be his, to be his treasured possession. You were never pitied or plan B. You were who God has chosen. So how has God loved Israel? How has God loved us? By choosing us. You might say, well, wait a minute. Wait. I walked, I walked to Jesus. I went to a camp at Zephyr that one time. Sure, you did, right? But you walked to Jesus on the basis of him calling you. So cool. Election is a tough doctrine for a few reasons, but none as clear as us wanting to be our own God. Here it is. Romans 8. Paul to the Romans once more, he goes on to say, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that is Jesus, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified, acquitted, changed their status. Uh, uh, they are now uh, right before God. Those whom he uh, called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And some will read that and be like, all right, well, I want to focus on that word for new. So let's go ahead and focus on that word for new, for knowledge. Here's one of the ways in which it is taught. For knowledge, many will say, well, that means that God looked down the corridors of time and he saw who would choose him, therefore he chose them. The problem with this is that that's not how election is displayed throughout scripture. Additionally, this view of foreknowledge is inaccurate because it diminishes God's omniscience and renders it dependent on us. Oh yeah, God's totally omniscient because I allow him to be. Damn, I got bro. That's not how it works. So then what does he mean by foreknowledge? One of the other translations that we could use for that word is foreloved. The word means that God has chosen, just track with me on this, means that God has chosen to have an intimate relationship with his people in spite of who they were. 
There's a difference between no and no. One is intellectual, one is relational. When I mean no, it's K-N-O-W, There's a difference between no and no. One is intellectual, one is relational. We know that God knows stuff. In fact, he knows everything. The word for knowledge here is not referring to his intellect. It is referring to his relational status with people. So when we, or with his people. So when we read back in Genesis that Adam knew his wife Eve, that word knew means that there was this intimacy in their relationship, that there was this uh, all knowing in their relationship. It went beyond intellect. And so when we read uh, the word foreknowledge, it's dealing with the intimacy of God, his affection for those whom he has called. Again, the pushback might be, well, does God love everyone? To a degree, yes. That's right, I said it. To a degree, yes, he, he loves everyone. It's called common grace. It's 75 degrees outside. You don't have to be a Christian to enjoy it. Right? If we go outside and hang out at the mall, not that I would ever want to go to the mall, but if we were to go to the mall, right, what's even right now, what's happening? We're breathing. That's cool, right? It's called common grace. It rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. Common grace for all. And yet, there is a specific love and affection for those who are his. We are a affectionately and effectively called to Jesus. Apart from this call, apart from God effectually calling us to himself, no one wants to be a Christian. No one wants to give up being their own God. No one wants to give up their sin. It takes one stronger than those chains to break them and buy us out of our sin and transferring us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Paul to the Ephesians says it this way, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will and the praise of his glorious grace. This doctrine should make us the most humble of people and the most passionate of the gospel. To Timothy, I think it's in 1 Timothy, Paul, or 2 Timothy, Paul tells his spiritual son, he says, I endure all things for the elect. In other words, I'll go preach to whoever and anyone. I'll take the beatings. I'll do, uh, I'll, I'll take the beatings. I'll be shipwrecked. I'll do whatever it takes so that God would save some. He doesn't know who they are, but he's willing to go wherever it takes to preach that gospel. We ought to be the most humble, thankful, and yet passionate. But reeling it back to Malachi. God has loved you 
by calling you to himself. Not on the basis of your goodness because you met him halfway or you took whatever steps forward, but according to his own mercy. And we close with verse five. Your own eyes shall see this. God's talking to Israel. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So after opening with his love for them, Israel challenging that claim, uh, God responding to their apathy with affection, he, he, he concludes in verse five that the greatness of the Lord extends beyond the border of Israel. Here's what God is saying. I need you to know this. Before we go on to the conviction portion of things, I need you to know this covenantal love I have for you. I need you to know that I love you, that I have chosen you. I have loved you. Why, why do we need to know this? Why do we got to park here for so long? It's so that we would remember his work for us and that that work would lead us to worship him. Listen, glory is God's business. Worship is ours. And so here, he's prepping them. He's prepping Israel. In turn, he's prepping us to receive the hard word that he has for Israel and for us. He's prepping them to receive his burden, not by bringing conviction first, but by reminding them of his covenant. Because when he meets them where they're at with his love, it leads them to worship, to walk in obedience. This is where the heart begins to change because people of God, us, know that we are loved by him. See, this matters because as we walk through this book, as we walk through the law, the law of God can do no good unless we know that God loves us first. And when we lean into that, when we trust in the love of God for us, that's when your desires begin to change. That's when we begin to walk a life of godliness. And you would say, man, but I'm going to fail. Yes, you will fail, but by God's grace, you will lean harder into the love of God for you. Additionally, when he writes, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. It's referring to Israel in the present, but it's also hinting at the one who redeems sinners, the one who will enter into human history as the man, Jesus Christ, to bring salvation and reconcile sinners to the Father. Church, when we doubt, when we're cold, when we're just checking off the boxes, when we're walking with no joy and all apathy, all of it is because we have forgotten God's love for us. In one of his sermons, good old Charles Spurgeon, Charlie Spurge, here's what he says. He's talking about a woman who uh, was wrestling with some heavy doubt. <clears throat> I once knew a woman who was the subject of many doubts, and when I got to the bottom of her doubt, it was this. She knew she loved Christ, but she was afraid he did not love her. Pause. Any of you feel that? Right? Orally. Here we go. All right, now real quick. His response is a little arrogant. Like I can see him responding slightly arrogant with that cigar in his mouth. But 
he gets to the gospel right after this. All right, here we go. She knew she loved Christ, but she was afraid he did not love her. Oh, I said, that is a doubt that will never trouble me. <laughs> Must be nice guy. All right, here we go. All right. That is a doubt that will never trouble me, never by any possibility, because I am sure of this. Here it is, that the heart is so corrupt naturally that love to God never did get there without God's putting it there. And then here, he changes gears a little bit and pastors his congregation super well. And he says this, you may rest quite certain. Listen, just listen to it. You may rest quite certain that if you love God, it is a fruit and not a root. It is the fruit of God's love to you and did not get there by the force of any goodness in you. If you love God, then be certain, you can be certain that God loves you because the only reason you can love God is because God loved you first. So consider your season, consider your apathy, consider your doubt, consider your struggles, consider your sin. Could it be that you have forgotten the love of God for you? Could it be that something else or someone else has shaped your heart apart from God's grace for you? Could it be that the reason you're living in sin is because you believe you have a better route to satisfaction and distrust God? Church, God loves you. He has demonstrated this to Israel in countless ways through glory and story and he has demonstrated this to, your, to you and me through Jesus Christ who entered into human history, lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death, was buried and raised from the dead resulting in the defeat of sin, Satan and death. In Jesus' work, the grace of God grafted more than just Israel but sinners like you and me. Paul says to the Romans, do you not know that it is the kindness of God that brings about repentance? God is a loving father who always makes the first move. You can't work your way into God's love, but we can trust in God because he loves us. Here's what one church father said, and we'll wrap it up. Do not be ashamed to enter again into the church. Be ashamed when you sin. Ugh, sounds like bad news. Check it. Be ashamed when you sin. Do not be ashamed when you repent. Pay attention to what the devil did to you. These are two things, sin and repentance. Sin is a wound. Repentance is a medicine. Just as there are for the body wounds and medicines, so for the soul are sins and repentance. However, sin has the shame and repentance possesses the courage. Man, it is the kindness of the heart of God that leads us to repentance and to remember his love for us. Church, do you allow circumstances to dictate your delight for God? If so, how's that going? How's that going? God loves you. 
He wants good for you. He wants what is best for you. And in spite of where your heart is at or where you are, this text reminds us that God always makes the first move and meets us where we are. Christian, you are loved. What wages war within you? And if you're not a Christian, I love that you're here. Thank you for being here. I hope that you're enjoying the common gifts of God. But you don't know God. Rather, the Bible says that you are in opposition to God. You are an enemy of God. You are estranged. No matter the depth of your morality. In fact, if that's what you hang on, how good you can be. Here's the question. Ready? What do you do with your guilt? But praise be to God that he has made a way for you to know him. And that is through the Lord Jesus Christ who pardons any sinner that turns to him in faith and repentance. Church, before bring, or excuse me, before God brings about conviction, he reminds us of his covenantal love for us. Let's pray. God, we are loved by you. We know this because you sent Jesus for us to live in our stead, die in our place, and rise from the dead so that we would experience a new and eternal life. Your wonderful work is redeeming evidence of your love for us. Yet we confess. We confess that we forget your love constantly because we are won by other temptations. We confess that we reject your love because we think we can do better. God, we confess that we forget your love because we still consider ourselves unclean. God, by your spirit, work work the wonder of your gospel into our hearts. Take us back to the beginning like we see with Peter on the shore. Restore us with grace. Renew our hearts with affection. Forgive our sins. 